Chapter 5 of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Anything You Can Do, Chapter 5. Two fifths of a second. That was all the time Bart Stanton had from the first moment his supersensitive ears heard the first faint whisper of metal against leather. He made good use of the time. The noise had come from behind and slightly to the left of him, so he drew his left-hand weapon and spun to the left as he dropped to a crouch. He had turned almost completely around, drawn his gun, and fired three shots before the other man had even leveled his own weapon. The bullets from Stanton's gun made three round spots on the man's jacket, almost touching each other and directly over the heart. The man blinked stupidly for a moment, looking down at the spots. "'My God!' he said softly. Then he returned his own weapon slowly to its holster. The big room was noisy. The three shots had merely added to the noise of the gunfire that rattled intermittently around the two men. And even that gunfire was only a part of the cacophony. The tortured molecules of the air in the room were so besieged by the beat of drums, the blare of trumpets, the crackle of lightning, the rumble of heavy machinery, the squawks and shrieks of horns and whistles, the rustle of autumn leaves, the machine-gun snap of popping popcorn, the clink and jingle of falling coins, and the yelps, bellows, howls, roars, snarls, grunts, bleats, moos, purrs, cackles, quacks, chirps, buzzes, and hisses of a myriad of animals, that each molecule would have thought that it was being shoved in a hundred thousand different directions at once if it had had a mind to think with. The noise wasn't deafening, but it was certainly all-pervasive. Bart Stanton had reholstered his own weapon and half opened his lips to speak when he heard another sound behind him. Again he whirled his guns in his hands, both of them this time, and his forefingers only fractions of a millimeter from the point that would fire the hair triggers. But he did not fire. The second man had merely shifted the weapons in his holsters and then dropped his hands away. The noise, which had been flooding the room over the speaker's system, died instantly. Stanton shoved his guns back into place and rose from his crouch. "'Real cute,' he said, grinning. I wasn't expecting that one." The man he was facing smiled back. "'Well, Bart, perhaps we have proved our point. What do you think, Colonel?' "'Bookbeep!' was addressed to the third man, who was still standing quietly, looking worried and surprised about the three spots on his jacket that had come from the special harmless projectiles in Stanton's gun. Colonel Mannheim was four inches shorter than Stanton's five-ten, and was fifteen years older. But in spite of the differences, he would have laughed if anyone had told him five minutes before that he couldn't outdraw a man who was standing with his back turned. His bright blue eyes, set deep beneath craggy brows in a tanned face, looked speculatively at the younger man. "'Incredible,' he said gently. "'Absolutely incredible!' Then he looked at the other man, a lean civilian with mild blue eyes a shade lighter than his own. "'All right, Farnsworth, I'm convinced. You and your staff have quite literally created a superman. Anyone who could stand in a noise-filled room and hear a man draw a gun twenty feet behind him is incredible enough. 
the fact that he could and did outdraw and outshoot me after I had started, well, that's almost beyond comprehension. He looked back at Bart Stanton. What's your opinion? Do you think you can handle the knipe, Stanton? Stanton paused imperceptibly before answering, while his ultra-fast mind considered the problem before arriving at a decision. Just how much confidence should he show the colonel? Mannheim was a man with tremendous confidence in his own abilities, but who was nevertheless capable of recognizing that there were men who were his superiors in one field or another. "'If I can't dispose of the knipe,' Stanton said, "'no one can.' Colonel Mannheim nodded slowly. "'I believe you're right,' he said at last. His voice was firm with inner conviction. He shot a glance at Farnsworth. How about the second man?" Farnsworth shook his head. "'He'll never make it. In another two years we can put him into reasonable shape again, but his nervous system just couldn't stand the gaff.' "'Can we get another man ready in time?' "'Hardly. We can't just pick a man up off the street and turn him into a superman. Even if we could find another subject with Bart's genetic possibilities, it would take more time than we have to spare. No way at all of cutting the time down?" "'This isn't magic, Colonel,' Farnsworth said. "'You don't change a nobody into a physical and mental giant by saying abracadabra or by teaching him how to pronounce Shazam properly.' "'I'm aware of that,' said the Colonel, without rancor. "'It's just that I keep feeling that five years of work on Mr. Stanton should have taught you enough to be able to repeat the process in less time." Farnsworth repeated the head-shaking. "'Human beings aren't machines, Colonel. They require time to heal, time to learn, time to integrate themselves. Remember that, in spite of our increased knowledge of anesthesia, antibiotics, viricides, and obstetrics, it still takes nine months to produce a baby. We're in the same position, if not more so. After all, we can't even allow for a premature delivery." "'I know,' said Mannheim. "'Besides,' Dr. Farnsworth continued, "'Stanton's body and nervous system are now close to the theoretical limit for human tissue. I'm afraid you don't realize what kind of mental stability and organization are required to handle the equipment he has now." "'I'm sure I don't,' Colonel Mannheim agreed. "'I doubt if anyone besides Stanton himself really knows.' He looked at Bart Stanton. "'That's it, then, son. You're it. You're the only answer we've found so far and the only answer visible in the foreseeable future to the problem posed by the Nipe. The colonel's face seemed to darken. Ten years,' he said in a low voice, Ten years that inhuman monster has been loose on earth. He's become a legend. He's replaced Satan, the boogeyman, Frankenstein's monster, and mumbo-jumbo Lord of the Congo in the public mind. Read the news facts, watch the newscasts. Take a look at popular fiction. He's everywhere at once. He can do anything. He's taken on the attributes of the gene, the vampire, the ghoul, the werewolf, and every other horror and hobgoblin that the mind of man has conjured up in the past half-million years. 
That's hardly surprising, Colonel, Bart Stanton said with a wry smile. If a human being had gone on a ten-year rampage of robbery and murder, showing himself as callously indifferent to human life and property as you and I would be to the life and property of a cockroach, and if, in addition, he proved impossible to catch, such a person would be looked upon as a demon too. And if you add to that the fact that the knife is not human, that he is as frightening in appearance as he is in actions, what can you expect?" I agree said Dr. Farnsworth. Look at Jack the Ripper and consider how he terrorized London a couple of centuries ago. I know, said Colonel Mannheim. There have been human criminals whose actions could be described as inhuman. But the knife has some touches that few human criminals have thought of, and almost none would have the capacity to execute. If he has time to spare, his victims become an annoying problem in identification when they're found he leaves nothing but well-gnawed bones. And by time to spare, I mean twenty or thirty minutes. The damned monster has a very efficient digestive tract, if nothing else. He eats like a shrew. And if he doesn't have time, he beats them to death," Bart Stanton said thoughtfully. Colonel Mannheim frowned. Not exactly. According to the evidence, Dr. Farnsworth interrupted him. Colonel, let's go into the lounge, shall we? Aside from the fact that standing around in an empty chamber like this isn't the most comfortable way to discuss the fate of mankind, this room is scheduled for other work." Colonel Mannheim grinned, caught up by the touch of lightness that the biophysicist had injected into the conversation. Very well. I could do with some coffee if you have some. All you want, said Dr. Farnsworth leading the way toward the door of the chamber and opening it. Or if you'd prefer something with a little more power to it. Thanks, no, said Mannheim. Coffee will do fine. How about you, Stanton? Bart Stanton shook his head. I'd love to have some coffee, but I'll leave the alcohol alone. I just have the luck to be finishing a drink when our friend the knight popped in on us. And when I do meet him, I'm going to need every microsecond of reflex speed I can scrape up." They walked down a soft-floored, warmly-lit corridor to an elevator, which whisked them up to the main level of the Neurophysical Institute building. Another corridor led them to a room that might have been the common room of one of the more exclusive men's clubs. There were soft chairs and shelves of books and reading tables and smoking stands, all quietly luxurious. There was no one in the room when the three men entered. We can have some privacy here, Dr. Farnsworth said. None of the rest of the staff will come in until we're through. He walked over to a table where an urn of coffee radiated soft warmth. Cream and sugar over there on the tray, he said as he began to fill cups. The cups were filled and the three men sat down in a triangle of chairs before any of them spoke again. Then Bart Stanton said, I made the remark that if the knipe doesn't have time to eat his victims, he just beats them to death. And you started to say something, Colonel." Colonel Mannheim took a sip from his cup before he spoke. Yes, I was going to say that, according to the evidence we have, he always beats his victims to death, whether he manages to eat them or not. Oh? Stanton looked thoughtful. Oh, he's not cruel about it, the Colonel said. He kills quickly and neatly. The thing is that 
he never under any circumstances uses any weapons except the weapons that nature gave him hands or feet or claws or teeth he never uses a gun or a knife or even a club dr yoritomo has some theories about that which i won't go into now he'll tell you about them pretty soon stanton thought about the japanese scientist and smiled i know dr yoritomo has threatened to tell me all kinds of theories and believe me he will said mannheim with a soft chuckle he took another sip of his coffee and then looked up at stanton you've been through five years of hell mr stanton in addition you've been pretty much isolated here dr farnsworth here has tried to keep you informed but as i understand it it has only been during the last few months that you've actually been able to absorb and retain information reliably. At least that's the report I get. How do you feel about it?" Bart Stanton thought for a moment. It was true that he'd been out of touch with what had been going on outside the walls of the Neurophysical Institute for the past five years. In spite of the reading he'd done and the newscasts he'd watched and the TV tapes he'd seen, he still had no real feeling for the situation. There had been long, hazy periods during that five years. He had undergone extensive glandular and neural operations of great delicacy, many of which had resulted in what could have been agonizing pain without the use of suppressors. As a result of those operations, he possessed a biological engine that, for sheer driving power and nicety of control, surpassed any other known to exist or to have ever existed on earth, with the possible exception of the Nipe. But those five years of rebuilding and retraining had left a gap in his life. Several of the steps required to make the conversion from man to superman had resulted in temporary insanity, the wild, swinging imbalances of glandular secretion seeking a new balance the erratic misfirings of neurons as they attempted to adjust to higher nerve-impulse velocities, and the sheer fatigue engendered by cells that were acting too rapidly for a lagging excretory system, all had contributed to periods of greater or lesser abnormality. That he was sane now there was no question, but there were holes in his memory that still had to be filled. He admitted as much to Colonel Mannheim. I see," the colonel rubbed one hand along the angle of his jaw, considering his next words. Can you give me, in your own words, a general summary of the type of thing the Nipe has been doing? I think so," Stanton said. His verbal summary was succinct and accurate. The loot that the Nipe had been stealing had, at first, seemed to be a hodgepodge of everything. It was unpredictable money, as such, he apparently had no use for. He had taken gold, silver, and platinum. But one raid for each of these elements had evidently been enough, with the exception of silver, which had required three raids over a period of four years. Since then, he hadn't touched silver again. He hadn't yet tried for any of the radioactives except radium. He'd taken a full ounce of that in five raids, but hadn't attempted to get his hands on uranium, thorium, plutonium, or any of the other elements normally associated with atomic energy. Nor had he tried to steal any of the fusion materials. 
the heavy isotopes of hydrogen or any of the lithium isotopes. Beryllium had been taken, but whether there was any significance in the thefts or not no one knew. There was a pattern in the thefts and robberies, nonetheless. They had begun small and had increased. Scientific and technical instruments, oscilloscopes, X-ray generators, radar equipment, maser sets, dynostatic crystals, thermolite resonators and so on, were stolen complete or gutted for various parts. After a while he had gone on to bigger things. Whole aircraft with their crews had vanished. That he had not committed anywhere near all the crimes that had been attributed to him was certain. That he had committed a great many of them was equally certain. There was no doubt at all that his loot was being used to make instruments and devices of unknown kinds. He had used several of them on his raids. The one that could apparently phase out any electromagnetic frequency up to about a hundred thousand megacycles, including sixty-cycle power frequencies, was considered a particularly cute item. So was the gadget that reduced the tensile strength of concrete to about that of a good grade of marshmallow. After he had been operating for a few years there was no installation on earth that could be considered night-proof for more than a few minutes. He struck when and where he wanted and took whatever he needed. It was manifestly impossible to guard against the nipe, since no one knew what sort of loot might strike his fancy next, and there was therefore no way of knowing where or how he would hit next. Nor could he ever be found after one of his raids. They were plotted and followed through with diabolical accuracy and thoroughness. He struck, looted, and vanished, and he wasn't seen again until his next strike. Colonel Mannheim, who had carefully puffed a cigar alight and smoked it thoughtfully during Stanton's recitation, dropped the remains of the cigar into an ash receptacle. Accurate, but incomplete, he said quietly. You must have made some guesses. I'd like to hear them. Stanton finished the last of his coffee and glanced at Dr. Farnsworth. The biophysicist was thoughtfully looking down at his own cup, his expression unreadable. All right, Stanton thought. He's looking for something. I'll let him have both barrels and see if I hit the target. I've thought about it, he admitted. He got up, went over to the coffee urn, and refilled his cup. I've got a pet theory of my own. It's just a notion, really. I wouldn't dare reduce it to syllogistic form, because it might not hold much water, logically speaking. But the evidence seems conclusive enough to me. He walked back to his seat. Colonel Mannheim was watching him, a look of interest on his face, but he said nothing. To me, Stanton said, it seems incredible that the combined intelligence and organizational ability of the UN government is incapable of finding anything out about one single alien, no matter how competent he may be. Somehow, somewhere, someone must have gotten a line on the Nipe. He must have a base for his operations, and someone should have found it by this time. I may be faster and stronger and more sensitive than any other living human being, but that doesn't mean I have superhuman powers, or that I'm a magician, 
and I'm quite certain that you, Colonel, don't credit me with such abilities. You don't believe that I can do in a short time what the combined forces of the government couldn't do in ten. Certainly you wouldn't rely too heavily on it. And yet, apparently, you are. To me, that can only mean that you have another ace up your sleeve. You know we're going to get the knight fairly quickly. You either have a sure way of tracing him, or you already know where he is. Which is it? Colonel Mannheim sighed. We know where he is, he said. We have known for six years. End of chapter 5